0: Are we going to do what they say can be done? We've got a long way to go, and a short
1: time to get there. I mean, I'm just one of them. Keep the football on the pedal. Some devil mind them breaks. Let it all hang out because we got
2: to run to pick. The boys up thirsty. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co host. Will George. We're missing Mark Wiley today, but this is a Day at the Yard Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. Episode 164 right now in the network. We Got a little smoking the Bandit preview music right there for our special guest today. Um, but before we introduce our guest, I just want to thank our 16,000 plus subscribers now. Will, we, we climbed over 16,000 Sunday night and we keep growing. Just want to remind you guys, continue to download, listen, like, subscribe. And much like baseball, what we do with baseball, we are trying to battle the analytics and the robotics here with podcasting. So make sure you rate and review. You do that, we can, we can compete and beat the system and continue to provide you great content like we do every week, especially this show with Will and Mark. If you are streaming our, our podcast, let us know. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher are our main streaming devices. You can let us know if there's another one and we'll subscribe to it. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Answer one question a day on Facebook, but I engage everybody privately and I'll get back to everyone. 297 questions today, Will, um, in preparation for our guest today, uh, which is great, great um, engagement by our audience. Continue to do so. We are in 72 countries now. Ryan Labarnway got us into Israel last week. So thanks to Ryan, up to 72 countries, grassroots baseball, all the way to Major League Front offices. we got the ear of everybody. And all we're trying to do right here, like we're going to do today with our guest is to try to build better baseball IQs with everybody out there. So um, with that, I'll do a quick preamble of our guest because through the dialogue, you're going to find out just how special he is. But our guest today, Sal Butera, in the big leagues from 1980 to 1988, world champion with the Minnesota Twins, undrafted but signed as a free agent in 1972, made his major league debut versus the A's in an extra inning game in 1980. Uh, When he finished his career, 2014, was the catching coordinator and video replay guy for the Blue Jays and is now a major league scout for the Toronto Blue Jays and we will talk about his son as well a son very accomplished major league catcher Drew Butera currently i believe with the Angels Sal, right as a is he with the Angels now
0: Yeah he's with the Angels he's their catching uh, coach uh, and game planner for their for their the big league club
2: Yep and we're going to we're going to talk about Drew a little bit in the show too but welcome welcome back to our show we gave this a trial one the first time had a good it was kind of like a pregame warm up we got interrupted by a storm and we're going to Kind of revisit some of those questions today, but but pick up where we left off. I know Will's got a bunch of questions he wants to get to, but Will, want to welcome you back to your show, the star of the show, Will George. we're we're without Mark Wiley today, so you got bumped up in the rotation here. You got the spot start today. We'll do our best. Yep, we'll do, and our and our wishes and our thoughts go out to Mark as well. Here, Um, I'm gonna get you or Sal. I'm gonna get you started off here today, and and then turn it over to Will uh, after a couple. But you're when you got signed as an undrafted free agent, I think this is a good message to our kids out there. All these kids are specializing in positions early. They're getting all the catching gear, 400 bucks, going to lessons and whatnot, but they're not playing multiple spots out there. When you got signed, you didn't get signed as a catcher, did you?
0: No, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was a third baseman in college, junior college, and uh, the scout who signed me, a gentleman by the name of Herb Stein, uh, had asked me actually if I'd ever caught before, and I said no. And he said, "Do you think you'd might like it?" And I said, "Well, I says I don't. (laughs) If if it's going to enhance my career, sure, I'll like it, Uh, because that's the way it was back in those days." And uh, so when I was, I signed right before the draft because I had finished my college tenure, the two years that I had gone, and I was eligible to sign as a free agent, Uh, and I did. And I went to spring training, and uh, instead of an infielder's glove, they gave me a catcher's glove.
2: Like I said, that was a clear message right there that the transition was going to happen right away. Then, And you spent a good amount of time. Well, let me go back. How important was it that you played other positions? Um, how did that weigh into your development as a catcher? Helpful, not helpful?
0: Oh, no, no. Very helpful. As a matter of fact, uh, we do it today. We we convert uh, athletic people for catching, for the position itself. You know, guys that have uh, quick feet. Not necessarily fast, but have quick feet, strong arms, and very good hands. Those are those are the uh, the ingredients in making a good catcher. You know, somebody who is uh, durable, tough, but at the same time athletic uh, and agile, and that's what you want, especially in today's game where the 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 velocity and the movement of pitches is so preferable.
2: Yeah, Stan Meek told us a good story on on one of our other shows where he went to watch JT Romuto – who was a shortstop in high school, um, yeah. would Play shortstop. And the coach came over to apologize to him that he wouldn't be playing short that day. He was going to have to catch because the original catcher was going to pitch. And that's how they ended up signing him as a catcher with the, with the Marlins was that one, that one uh, debut he had behind the dish where Stan called back and said, Hey, I think this kid needs to get drafted as a catcher. And we know what JT's become. And yeah. I'm he- not
0: surprised. I had done a, uh, uh, I had done a, a survey about, four or five years ago, because I had noticed I I had uh, talked to the Molina brothers and I had noticed how many Latino players had converted to the catching position. And uh, I started, you know, going down the list of uh, all the catchers at the major league level. So you have 30 clubs. So roughly it was about 60 players and over 50% of them were conversions.
2: Wow. So it's it's it makes sense you know uh, it, will say and I thought about the same name Posada and Carlos Reese and I'm sure there's a there's a ton of others as well so there's something to that where guys are learning the agility and the toughness and the feet and the hands and the balance where it, it weighs into catching and I always tell my son my son's a catcher he plays catcher with his his team but when he plays with our older group he plays a lot of second base shortstop center field and I always tell him when he's behind it the plate you know catch like you're playing shortstop just be athletic back yeah. there and That's uh, a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. And he 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 and it's the same thing when he throws, you know, don't don't be long, it's the same as throwing in the infield. So you, with, know, um, we, uh,
1: you know, just to add to that for yeah. coaches that are listening, you know, you only have four infield positions. Uh when you have a kid who has good hands and feet, they're tough, they're smart kids, you know, think about putting them behind the plate and developing a passion to catch. Uh because all those things are needed and are, are tremendous assets for catchers. And, yes. you know, that's something that Herb Stein, who I knew well uh, when I started as an area scout, he was a good scout. And those veteran guys could always see more than just what you're seeing at the ball game. when they see a guy like Sal who plays the game the right way and has good hands and feet and he's a smart kid and go, wow, it's going to play behind the plate as well.
2: Yeah. And then you uh, you had a – it was a seven- or eight-year journey in the minors, where- I,
0: I was Yeah, I was drafted – well, signed as a free agent in 72. Uh, I was loaned out my first two years because uh, at the time the Twins had so many catchers that I was, wasn't going to get a chance to play. So back in those days it was very fashionable to loan somebody to another organization – if they were uh, deficient at a position. And so I played with the White Sox my first year. I was fortunate enough because the uh, the, the White Sox main catcher on that team on the rookie ball club uh, had a concussion and missed the entire season. So I got to play every day. And then in my second year, I got optioned out to the Yankees in Fort Lauderdale in the Florida State League. And um, their main catcher, Uh, blew his knee out in the first week of the season and I wound up catching every day there so for me it was like the the good lord was looking after me and basically blessed me and said you're going to make it at this position it's just going to take a lot of work and I think probably in my third full years where I started to see the um, uh, fruits of my labor I went to a big league camp in 1976 with a young phenom at that time was a guy named Butch Weininger yeah, who wound up making the big league club as a 19-year-old. So then I had to sit back and wait a couple more years before I got my opportunity.
2: Yeah. And I, I just have two more questions for you, and I'm going to turn it over to Will. Um, you know, and you, you touched on both of them there. During that journey, people who have not played minor league baseball or baseball at that level at all, don't understand the mental and physical toughness you have to have to not just be able to compete and make it in one season, but you did it over a long period of time. Share with our audience a little bit about, you know, I guess one, the lessons you've learned during that time, uh, both as a catcher and toughness, but also um, just just how challenging it is to, to make it through in that eight-year that eight period.
0: Yeah, it, it, I'm not saying it was not uh, rosy by any means. Uh, you know, life in the minor leagues at that time, you didn't make a lot of money. You were living with three or four other guys. Uh, but I was singularly focused. My, my one main goal was to keep improving because I had belief in myself, and that's really where most of my uh, strength came from. I, I fully believed that I was capable enough to play at the higher levels, especially when I started getting close. When you start to face guys that you uh, that are getting to the big leagues, you know you have the ability. Now it's you know it comes the opportunity, and I always felt that when I got the opportunity, if it ever came my way, uh, I would take the most you know make the most of it. But I really. A, a real key thing happened to me in my, my last year, before I got to the big leagues, my dad who worked, uh, you know, 24 70 to provide for my family, I had four sisters. So he worked all the time. He, he never saw me play baseball. Uh, he was a dad who worked. I played in the afternoon. There was no lights at that time. He never saw me play high school, did not see me play college. Uh, when I got to the minor leagues, he would see me on occasion and, He came to visit me. I was in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, uh, where the Red Sox had their AAA team, and we sat down. I think I was twenty-five or twenty-six at the time, and we sat down. and He looked me right in the eye and he said, "Uh, "Do you think you should do something else?" He said, "Is it about time? Maybe you should think about a different career." And I think that's what really fueled me to say, "I'm going to show you, Dad. I'm going to prove you wrong, and I'm going to make it in this game." And uh, lo and behold. I think I even got tougher at what I was doing and worked that much harder and focused that much more. And eventually my opportunity came.
2: Yeah. I think it's a great message to our kids out there that are listening that want that instant gratification, maybe a little fragile nowadays where, as you just, I mean, very eloquently stated, you took your hits, you kept moving forward, you stayed locked in on what you wanted and you just weren't going to go away. Um, until you got what you want. I think that's a valuable lesson for kids nowadays who tend to fall by the wayside when things don't go their way the first time. And parents don't have that, and and probably wasn't received well when your dad said it, but that toughness to challenge their kids and say, think about this. And it it certainly works there.
0: I think you learn more in adversity, David. I mean, I I think, you know, life is not easy. Life, there's, there's, there's problems in everything that you do in life. So Uh, It's how you uh, approach it, how you deal with it, and how you overcome it, I think, are the the strongholds of of how you will develop as an individual as well as as an athlete. And I always felt I was mentally tough. Uh, You may beat me physically, but you're not going to beat me mentally, and I'm going to be prepared at whatever I do. And I think that's what sustained me for all those years. And then when I got the opportunity, I was a little older, a little more mature. And so I was able to handle failure, and then failure is a, a, a big factor in that because a lot of guys in the minor league, especially at the low levels, they don't know how to deal with failure. They were all stars in most cases, or they were told they were stars by other people, and they get in our game, and failure is a big part of it. Uh, you, you know, the best players fail seven out of ten times.
2: You're right. a
0: Yeah, right. And so for me, uh, I, I was able to deal – Whatever adversity came my way, and 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 tried to spin it in a positive
2: way. That's great. Well, go ahead. You had some, you wanted yeah,
0: to? Yeah, you know, just so so much great
1: advice there, Sal, to young players and people who are coaching young players that 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 mental toughness, the realization that the game is built around failure, and it's okay to fail, and tomorrow's a new day. Um, and then the, you know, the other thing that uh, hard work develops some success and that develops a confidence in yourself that you can do it and I think uh, you know like you know like I remember working with younger players and saying you got to believe in yourself well how do you believe in yourself well when you do the work you you see this you see the results and the success now you start to believe I can pitch in the big leagues I can catch in the big leagues I can hit in the big leagues because you've prepared yourself to do that. And it's, it, it, it's a journey that's not an instant gratification like everybody wants to have in life right now. It's a long journey that takes hard work and, and having you know people around you that support you and keep you on the right road and kick you in the ass when you need it and pat you on the ass when you need it and realize that you're, not every day is going to be perfect.
0: Yeah, that's very true. You know, sometimes you, you know, you take two steps forward and you take a step backwards. And uh, sometimes it's, you take those, uh, it's like instant gratification, but there may be small increments of it. And when you, when, when those things happen, you have to understand the process and you say, okay, I saw what I did on this particular day in whatever area you're working on. Now let me expand upon that and and continue to go until I feel comfortable enough to say, well, you know, you never really have it all the time, but you know what, what it's going to take to get there. And I think that's the, the journey of it, which to me, I always enjoyed that just as much as instant gratification was the journey because I knew all the work they had I had put in to get to that point. You
1: know, that, that's a great point. You know, uh, I was taught that at a young age, you know, that sometimes you need to take a step back to go forward. You know we got to make this adjustment, which is not going to be comfortable for you right now, but in the long run, you're going to have a better major league quality fastball and curveball, and have better command of your pitches. Well, then that all made sense to me.
2: Don't have to have a- both you don't have both. guys, both you guys, answer this. You're both major league scouts. How important it is when you're watching players play to view them when they're uncomfortable or when you get them and you're developing to. Kind of put them in uncomfortable states. What's that tell you about kids when they're performing in that? Well, it's, a
0: great, uh, ahead, me, yeah. Yeah, well, it's a great question yeah. because um, you know when we watch players, we have small sample sizes. You know, we don't we don't get the, the chance to sit and work with these kids and see them develop throughout the course of the year. We may go in for a five or six game series and have to decipher when we see certain things, and we're trained because we've been at it a long time, to kind of pick up certain a- uh, areas. As a matter of fact, I wrote up a, a young man. I'm watching the uh, AAA uh, affiliate of the, the Miami Marlins right now, and there's a young man who got off to a slow start the first two games. He struggled making contact. And, you know, I was, I was viewing him. at. I saw what he was trying to do, but he was just, you know, uh, making the same stupid mistakes in the first two games. And all of a sudden in that third game, for some reason, whatever his focus was, was better. And the last three games I've seen him play, obviously he's put it into effect. So my opinion changed from that first game to where I am right now, just in that little small sample size of five games, seeing what he's trying to accomplish. And that's what uh, what it takes sometimes is understanding where a player might come from, having also the information. And that's what's so important today. We have so much information that's given to us that you look at and see prior to watching the player. I try to uh, put all that into effect before I see the player, and then I make my own uh, uh, assessment of it. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, there was something I learned early on when I first started doing this. I always gravitated towards the older scouts. And, Sal, you remember Larry Haney.
0: Oh, very well.
1: Larry was a very, very good scout, and I was sitting with him one night in Philadelphia, and he pulled out a little binocular because he he wanted to look at a pitcher's face in a tough situation. And you know as a catcher and I know as a pitching coach, when I walked out and looked in somebody's eyes, I knew who was going to be successful and who wasn't. And very true. Did. Yeah. And I, I, I carry, like, a little binocular occasionally that I'll pull out when I look at a guy's face and go, oh, my gosh, he's scared to death.
0: You know, it's funny you say that because I used to do the same thing when I caught. I would always look at the hitter for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to make sure he didn't look at my signs. Right. But I always wanted to look at his face or his eyes to see where he was, you know, regardless of, of what his background was or where, where he was statistically what he felt like facing this particular guy on the mound. And you yeah. could tell, you could tell uh, oh, without, with a, without a doubt how a guy felt comfortable or not. No, <laughs> and, you, and, and you could really see
1: it when I got to the big leagues to scout a lot. And I remember Jim Fergosi and I were in Baltimore one day and somebody was throwing 100 miles an hour and they got hit so hard. It was unbelievable. And he goes, these hitters up here sniff fear. That guy's scared to death. And, you, and that's what you're talking about. You would look at a hitter, and you knew who was afraid of your pitcher and who was confident that they – and so, you know, we're going to really have to make pitches to this guy, but this guy has no chance. Right. You could, you, you could just sense it and feel it. You know, I can't quantify it to the analytic people out there. But I know when there's a pitcher that's scared to death, and I know when a pitcher is confident and he's attacking hitters.
0: Well, you know, a statistic can't tell you what it's like when you're in the batter's box, when it's a 3-2 count, right. a winning run at third base, or if you're on the mound and you're facing, you know, a, a really good hitter in in a, in a situation where the game's on the line. You know, it's hard to measure that guy's heart and also measure his, his um the level of uh, competitiveness. You know, some guys, you know, will lean back and, you know, shy away from, and other guys will attack it. You know, just it's a different mentality. And I think that's what separates the great players from the good players. Sal,
1: Sal, one time when I was coaching, uh, I got an older pitcher who had some big league experience. You remember Mike Birkbeck? Yes. Good curveball. Came out of the Milwaukee system, which was a, good pitching system. And he said, Hey, have you ever tried this? Uh, next time we go on a road trip, call all the pitchers in and just talk to them about like a big league situation. And at that time, you know, the Conseco and Maguire, the bash brothers were in Oakland. And so the, that was my example. I said, okay, um, you got two men on nobody out and you got to face McGuire McGuire and uh, Conseco and, you know, Carney Lance for coming up, you know, how are we going to get through this? And my guys who ended up pitching in the big leagues that always had a thought process, took a deep breath, you know, might ask me a question, you know, McGuire likes the ball down over the plate, right? I had other guys who looked like they were going to have a heart attack when I asked them that question in a hotel room at one <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon. So I kind of knew who was going to, you know, have to really struggle through pressure situations, through having a process, be able to think on their feet as opposed to Charlie Nagy, who I had on that team and we had on an earlier broadcast, Charlie kind of goes, well, you know, I got to uh, do it. I, do I have what do I have today? Well, you got your good sinker and your slider. Oh shoot! Well, here is what I am going to do. And he got out of the inning right, you know, with four pitches. You know, and the other guy was still sweating about twenty minutes later. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, I always thought that was a pretty neat exercise that I had never you know thought, but it, but it kind of gives you an idea what's inside of a guy too.
0: Well, I think that's a that a lot of the managers of today especially the older ones uh, that are, are still managing like Dusty Baker and, and yeah. so forth, you know, they know, they want to know what they have down there when they bring yeah. somebody in a situation. Yep. They, he may not have the best stuff on that given night, but, but he also wants to know if he can count on them. He's got yeah. whatever he puts, whatever he's got on that given night, he's going yeah. to get And that's, yeah. and that tells you a lot about the, the players on the team.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Buck, Showalter is the same way, you know, uh, Tommy Hunter, Just just pitches well for Buck, and Buck trusts him, and I'm sure that's what makes him pitch better. Is that there's a there's a level of
0: trust between the two of them? Yeah, absolutely. That's a big that's a big factor.
2: Yeah, Sal, you you had to develop that a lot with the pitchers. You you're on six major league clubs over your career, and as a career backup, um, you you caught with some other great catchers. Could you could you expound upon? Uh, I guess, talk about the catchers that you caught with as partner catchers, maybe what you learned from them, and what's the role of the backup catcher? How hard did you have to work? What were some of the the different ways you had to work as opposed to the starter?
0: Well, first of all, I'll address the guys I played behind, and one reason why I didn't play as much is because I played behind four all-star catchers. I played behind Gary Carter, uh, Bo Diaz in Cincinnati, Butch Weiniger in Minnesota, uh, Lance Parrish in Detroit, so... I played behind some good ones, and I learned a lot from you know uh, them uh, in certain aspects. But basically, the backup catcher has to be aligned with the front line catcher. Uh, You have to work harder as a backup catcher because you have to be able. All phases of your game have to stay ready, and it's hard to duplicate catching. So you have to go down to the bullpens. You have to simulate game situations. You have to put uh, 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 work harder in in simulation type scenarios, meaning throwing to bases uh, and then on top of that you got, you got to find time to hit so there's a lot more that goes into it you work twice as hard, I always said and you have to get to know your pitching staff and I think as a backup, you tend to have a better rapport with a lot of those guys because you're with them a lot more you know you're in the bullpen a lot more maybe not as much today because now they have bullpen catchers for those roles but in my generation, your backup did all the work he he caught all the bullpens and he did all the preliminary work so you got to know what 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 guys could do and couldn't do and how they and they ha- how they reacted in situations and that to me was the biggest factor as a catcher you wanted to know what what your pitcher had on a given night and also what he felt comfortable in throwing in given situations once you figured that out you could pretty much work in the line with him because you were kind of thinking along the way he was but at the same time, making him feel like whatever he decided to do was was the best possible pitch at that particular time.
2: And as a backup catcher, you're you're not getting the optimal at bats, right? You're getting the the day game after a night game. You're going against the uh, maybe the ace starter on the other team because someone needs a day off. it's not yeah. all the time, but pretty safe to say.
0: No, that's probably true. But uh, you know, if you're going to give the frontline guy a day off. Well, you're going to give him a day off when you're facing usually a number one or two starter on the opposition team to give him give him a little bit of a break. And that was OK, because truthfully, as a backup, you wanted the challenge of at least I did. I wanted the challenge to face, you know, some of the better pitchers in, in, the, in the game at that time, because, you know, it's 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 a pride thing. You measure up against the best in the game. And if you're only going to play twice a week, in some cases, why not get you know, why not get the best of the you know, best of what the other team has to offer? And that's how I approached it in my career. So that when I went to face those guys, I was I was very, even though, I you know, they beat me more times than I beat them, I was very confident in the batter's box.
2: Yeah. Will, how about you as a, you know, former professional pitcher and a pitching coach too? How did, what was your approach to engaging the backup catcher?
1: Well, for, you know, for me, I've always believed uh, the importance of both the both the everyday and the backup catcher lends to good pitching staffs. Um, there's a synergy between them. They care about they care about calling the game. They care about their pitchers. There's a relationship there, and as Sal said, they know their pitchers. They know what they're capable of doing. They're prepared. Um, you know, just look. You know, last year the two teams that went to the World Series, the, the Rail Muto has a tremendous synergy with all of his pitching staff, he knows what they can do and what they can't do. He knows when he needs to go out and talk to them. He knows when he needs to, 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 to to keep them moving quickly when they get into a good rhythm. Um, You know, the catchers in Houston did the same thing. You watch that and you see good teams, good teams uh, have, have that, Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, tip, Tip my hat to, to, uh, to Sal uh, in, in having Drew. Drew was a big part of our success in Colorado in 2017 and 18. You know, we brought him in, and he, he caught a lot, uh, paired up with Tony Walters as a right-handed, left-handed. But his knowledge of hitters and knowledge of game planning helped us pitch as well as we ever did in Coors Field, one of the toughest places in the world. And I think our last time we were on, I was leading into that. And I've always believed in that and wanted to see, hear what Sal's thoughts are on that as well.
0: Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a great point. Um, you know, so much is made of analytics today. And obviously, the information you have as a catcher is, is vital. But Probably some of the key ingredients also is is you have to have imagination. You have to know your pitchers' strengths and weaknesses on that given day. You know, uh, just because a, a, a guy uh, is a good fastball hitter doesn't mean you can't challenge him with your fastball, provided it's properly located. You have to sense the situation, the the, the uh, inning of the game, the score of the game. All those factors play in, and that's why your good backup Type player, or even your frontline player, for that matter, has to be prepared in every aspect to to be flexible enough to say, "Listen, I always use the story. Back in the day when I was playing, uh, I caught a very good pitcher in Mike Flanagan uh, uh, when Flanagan was with us in Toronto. And I remember a day in particular. He, uh, I was warming him up in the bullpen. He really didn't have much, so we start the game off. He works the first. He walks the first two guys, and I take I call time out and I go to the mound and I. Almost chuckled. I said, "You know what you have right now is not working. What do you want to do?" And he looked at me straight in the eye with a straight face, and he said, "I'm going to throw curveballs from here on out until I could find my fastball." And I looked at him. I said, "Every pitch." He goes, "Yeah, every pitch." He wound up going seven and a third innings that day against a very good Minnesota Twin hitting team, and showed me that you have to be, you have to have that imagination and that flexibility. To know yourself, know thyself, as I always said, and be able to adjust on the fly. That's what makes a good backup catcher, and that's what makes the have the confidence the pitcher has in the catcher that's calling the pitches.
1: You know, you know, it's you know, flying came out of Baltimore where I came from, and that was something that uh, Bamberger and Ray Miller would teach us, you know, hey, you know, you throw five straight fastballs out of the strike zone, throw a couple curveballs. You know, yeah. you know, yeah. you slow your body down. You change your release point. You stop overthrowing. Throw a couple change ups. Throw a BP fastball. Just take something off. Throw a little two seamer. Try to get yourself a ground ball. But that's all uh, imaginative. It's organic. It happens in the moment. It's not scripted. No, <laughs> um, no, no. You and, and and that's you know you know that's the thing. You know, to me, a good catcher. You know, you know, we have all of our catchphrase words. Oh, he really knows how to sequence. He knows when his pitcher's tunneling. Well, I mean, those are all fancy words for you know, mixing your pitches, reading a swing, <laughs> and yeah. and and knowing when your guy's on time and making pitches, basically. So, um,
0: you know, but, one, factor, one factor today that you don't you don't see anymore is, and I see it. You know, I'm sure you see it from the scouting uh, perspective. In my generation, guys moved, hitters moved in the batter's box all the time. Yeah. Yeah. They moved based on the guy who was pitching. If a guy was a sickle ball pitcher, the hitter moved up. If he was a, a a hard thrower, they moved back to give them a little more time. If the guy had a slider, he might get closer to the plate right on right, say. So all those factors. Today, you watch a guy get in the batter's box, and I always tell our – I told Drew this at a very early age, but I tell the catchers too. He goes, I used to always wait till the hitter got set – before I got set. And now you can get set because no hitter ever moves. They get in one spot and they stay in that one spot. They, and they, they dig- never make any adjustments based on what a guy's throwing.
1: They dig their toehold, which was taboo in our day when somebody would dig a hole. That's <laughs> you, know, true. you yeah. know, You know, how many times, you know, when you were catching and during our era, when a guy was digging in and swinging out of his behind, you know, you you made them a little bit uncomfortable. Now I watch guys dig in and nobody even comes inside. You know, they're up on the plate, they're digging in, and they're diving and they're going, you know, you got to keep them honest, please.
0: Well, one reason why I tell the catchers to do that, and, and, and for whatever reason, we're seeing it more and more in this day and age, is I never wanted to get catchers interference. So I would always make sure the hitter, because I never knew where he would get in the batter's box, where he would put his feet. Nowadays, you watch the catchers get set before the hitter gets in. I have never seen this year. I probably seen ten catchers' interferences already, and I see you see it at the big league level as well as the minor league level. And it's a lot. Don't you think a lot of that is because they're
1: they're they're working that from the ground up, and they're reaching out to try to steal that strike, and they get their glove in the way all the time. Yes,
0: yes, that's a part of it. There's no doubt. You when you when you catch on one knee, you get a little bit more upright. Uh, or at least some guys do, and, and unfortunately, when you get upright, you tend to reach a little bit more, yeah. and that's what happens. The guy doesn't take that stride, and he winds up nipping the top of your glove.
2: Yeah. What's your, what's your thoughts on that, Sal? we you know today's catching style. We're seeing a lot of the one knee. We're seeing a lot of that, like Will said, they're working down up trying to steal the strike. I get on my son about that. I tell him to catch as deep as possible so the umpire can see it longer. And then um, the pitch calling. Seems to be coming from the dugout now. What are your What are your thoughts on those three areas in today's well, game?
0: Well, I'll address this style, the, the catching style first. Number one, we I caught on one knee. I did it all the time when there was nobody on base to give my pitcher a low target. I would set in a, in, a, in a one spot, and also it helps your legs. Uh, Tony Pena was the first guy that I saw in my generation yeah. started, but a lot of guys did it. Just number one, you stay lower. Number two, you you do save your knees a little bit. But certainly with men on base or in throwing situations, whatever the case may be, I always caught it in a, in a, in a squat type position, so I was more athletic, more agile. Uh, so that's that's if that answers your question as far as whether whether I like it or not. I'm not opposed to it, but I also think there's a time and a place where I think today's in today's game you see too many balls that bounce off of catchers that go sideways or go backwards because they're more upright when they're when they're in that locked. Uh, one leg position. Again, I say this because nowadays you have to be more athletic. The the bigger, slower, uh, less mobility type uh, catcher, he can move off of that. And and truthfully, I want my pitcher to have confidence throwing a ball in the dirt when there's a man on third base, and I want to make sure I can block it. The worst thing that can happen is if I'm in position and it hits off me and winds up going to the side or behind me and the, and the run scores. So that's, that's one of the areas where it's uh, a little more deficient. The only catcher I ever saw uh, that was able to throw from his knees successfully was Benito Santiago. Yeah. 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 Primarily because he had a cannon for an arm and he was very, very athletic. He wasn't, uh, he was uh, athletically built. He was very agile and very quick in today's game. I don't know too many guys that have arm strength. Maybe Sal Perez is one of them that has the ability to throw off of a knee consistently and have sub two, have sub one nine five, two, two flat times to second base with accuracy.
1: Sal, uh, Benito, um, I got my last year playing, I got sent down to Miami as an older player coach with, uh, and Benito was the everyday catcher. So um, I was in the starting rotation and uh, first night he caught me, I probably shook him off. One hundred and twenty times that night, <laughs> but, <laughs> but he, he, the the first guy that tried to steal, he threw a ball from his knees back that nicked my ear. Oh yeah, and uh, and I heard that off my. <laughs>
0: yep.
1: Well, either off my hat or my ear, like I'm, I'm going, holy crap! Because he had never caught me. I had, I had driven, driven in from Double A at that time, and it was my first start,
0: and I had never even, even been with him. And I go, holy mackerel, he almost killed me. Well, so, you know, it's, it's, and it's interesting to see in today's game now with some of the new rules, uh, you're starting to see stolen bases become vogue oh. again, which. Which I love, by the way, for me it's great. But oh, what, yeah. what you're what, what you're seeing is a lot of catchers getting exposed, not only catchers but pitchers too. Because so. what thing is, you know, for the longest time the stolen base was you know pretty obsolete, and now no. and now it's 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 like I look at this kid Volpe with the Yankees. I I love his aggressiveness, and I think if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if he's been thrown out yet. I think he's eight for eight now. Yeah, so, and I think you're seeing teams now are starting to say, well, you know, the long ball is great, but there are going to be times when you come up against a really good picture where you have to manufacture runs, and and the best way to manufacture it is is if you have speed, use it. Why 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 let it be a negative? Let's let's use it as a positive. And uh, I know the you know the old adage was you had to be you know successful 80 percent of the time. Well. You know, I think guys are are taking more chances now, and and, and they're and they're using that to their advantage. And uh, I think you're going to see by the end of the year, stolen bases are going to be up considerably from last year. Sal, I'm I'm down here in the
1: Florida State League right now, and in two nights, uh, Clearwater has uh, Carl Crawford's son and a couple other kids that can really run. I think they've stolen about twelve or thirteen bases in two nights, and Last night they shut it down when they fell behind 10-2 to two in the fifth inning. So that was just in a game and a half, and Tampa's stolen probably five or six. But, you know, one of the things some of the older scouts we talked about, this generation of catchers and pitchers haven't had to worry about stolen bases like we did. Yeah. You know, we played in an era where guys like Ricky Henderson – in the big leagues, I mean, in the minor leagues, I had a team in Nashville in Double A that had Willie McGee, Otis Nixon, and Teddy Wilborn. All three of them stole a hundred bases. And then you go on the next road trip and you played against Memphis with Tim Raines and Tony Phillips. Yeah, so you you had to know how to hold runners. These guys these guys look over, but I don't think they they know how to read when a guy's going to steal. They don't know what a good lead is, and when they do need to throw over, and that's one of the reasons I don't like the limited throw overs. You know, you, know, you
0: see, with, with, with if, if a guy throws over twice, you see these runners. Yeah, really, they're, they're taking at least one or two extra steps towards the second right. base.
2: Well, they get and, a running start.
0: Yeah, and, and what what the kid uh, Volpe does in the Yankees, he hops. Yeah, it's yeah. Almo- it almost looks like a delay steal. Yeah, yeah. But his his timing is such. That he's looking at the pitch count clock, and he's timing it where he knows the guy's got to go home. Yeah, so he gets a start almost a, a running lead uh, when he times it. where where like for instance, if he gets down to three or uh, four seconds, he knows these guys got to release the point, and he's he's taking that extra step or two, which obviously is a huge advantage in stealing a base. No, no, and you know even even some of
1: the good catchers in the big leagues when I was uh, up there the first couple weeks were having trouble you know because nobody was stealing in the past and now all of a sudden people are attempting four or five steals a night and these guys had gotten a little bit complacent i think yeah. sometimes too. yeah you know it's
0: it's it's the interesting part is you know in my generation if you couldn't throw you couldn't play the position no that was exactly. one of the prerequisites of a catcher if you know because there was so much running in the game and i played through the 80s yeah. At the major league level. And, and you had some of the best premier base deals, like you've mentioned. And uh, the, the barometer in when I played was about 25 to 30 percent. If you were successful, one out of four or, or one out of three, you were really you were pretty good. Uh, the elite had over 40 percent. And really? I always I always prided myself in that area to say, well, you know what, as a backup catcher, that's got to be first and foremost, uh, helping your pitcher, calling a good game, be able to block, and certainly uh, shut down a running game if you had the opportunity. And that's that was yeah. you know, some of the factors that I, uh, you know, I uh, uh, worked on more than, say, some of the other ones because it was so necessary in that generation. Right.
2: What kind of tips can you guys give uh, you know, kids in this next generation coming up on uh, holding runners, keeping runners off balance? Obviously, I know the bases are a little bit bigger. You talked about the nuance of the, the clock, them timing it, uh, catchers on the one knee harder you know, harder to throw, and then the, the whole rule with how many times they can look over said, those are four factors that I think are helping these guys out. But younger guys coming in, what should they be working on in terms of holding runners on? What are some of the nuances you're talking about?
0: Go ahead, Will, and I'll, then I'll, pick okay, up. I'll I'll
1: take on the pitching side. First of all, uh, watch who you're playing against. See who can run and will run. Um, and then once you identify those guys, you know, those are the guys you have to be conscious of their leads. When you look over there, you're not just looking because that's what you're supposed to do is give one look and then make a pitch. You're, you're identifying, is he antsy? Try to read a guy, you know, you can kind of see when a guy wants to go when they're, you know, it becomes a, as they say, a cat, cat and mouse game. So, you know, you have to do your homework. You have to know who can run. You have to know what their tendencies are. Uh, You know, some guys, uh, I I remember playing against guys who would get big leads when they weren't running, and they they would be a step less when they were running. But they were leaning, and they were on the balls of their feet. You know, one of the things we used to make guys hold the ball, and you would actually see a runner Go from the balls of his feet to go to his heels when you held the ball. So if you are on a clock, you got to get set quickly, and like where 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 you can kind of break a break a runner's timing because in everything there you you need to have a rhythm. Um, you know, you know, don't be ridiculously slow to home plate. Give your catcher a chance to throw people out. You know, you know, you got to stay. One, three, and under, you gotta uh, not let guys get walking and running leads and get ridiculous jumps on your catcher. You have to have respect for your catcher and give him a chance to get the guy so so I'll let you take the catching side.
0: okay, uh, first and foremost with the young catchers, and I teach catching all the time, um, obviously taught it my son and as well as as other guys that are in the at the major league level. Uh, But even at the the lower amateur level, when they're just starting to play the position, first of all, don't ever stereotype anybody individually. There's there's more than one way to skin a cat, as I always say. Look at the individual. Look at his attributes. Look at his size. Look how quick his feet are. Arm strength, where his position of his hand is on the ball. Uh, Too many uh, guys grip the ball incorrectly. You grip the ball across the seams. You want your thumb underneath the ball and you want to get that backspin as you release it. I always basically go to the basics of, of the position play a lot of long toss, stretch out your arm, get length in your arm. And then you can start to get into uh, technique. And the technique is based on the individual's ability. And when you look at a kid that's maybe a little taller, he might be a little slower footed and you want him to get a, 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 a quick first step or a one step throw. When a guy's a little more agile, you want to maybe uh, get a little more momen- momentum into the pitch. So you kind of lead or start as the ball's you know coming at you under control. So there's many ways you 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 view a young player to try to enhance their ability. The best thing to do is, is play a lot of long toss, get your arm in a good throwing position with your top two fingers on top of the baseball, not on the side. That'll eliminate um, tail action or sink action when you throw throwing the ball at second base. I always threw the ball beyond second base. I always teach kids, throw it through the bag, not to it. It's important that you get the idea of that that you're going to extend yourself. And then, you know, then just watch it and and keep, uh, you know, I thought the more I threw, the better I became. Today, in today's game, they don't throw enough as far as I'm concerned. I used to love to take infield. You don't see infield anymore. I used to love to throw in between games or, you know, when like I hadn't played in a day or two, I'd want to make at least six or seven throws to second base, a few to third base, and a couple of pickups to first base for timing purposes. So, you know, all those factors play into uh, what I consider a good thrower behind the plate. If you can can measure your technique and keep your technique the same, regardless of what pitch you call, that's usually a guy that I feel that can be a good thrower at, at any level, regardless of where he's playing.
2: I like that, what? And I got another question for both you guys. What about we talked about ground up? You know, guys are working ground up, trying to steal strikes, both as a pitcher and a catcher. Now, Will, obviously, being a being a pitcher, as a pitcher, do you prefer the target? Do you mind the ground up and style? What, what do you promote with the catchers?
0: Well, I'll take this one, uh, Will. First, um, for me, ground up is just getting underneath the ball, and that's that's a uh, you know I I hate the word frame. I prefer receive. I mean, I think a catcher receives the ball. I think when you work from the ground up, you're loose. If you watch most, most catchers, they have some form of hitch in their arm as a timing mechanism. So they'll invert their glove from the ground up. Where What where, where I used to always say is thumb down. Because the th- with the thumb down, you work underneath the ball. That to me is is the best position. If you could if sometimes I've seen guys where they make a three-quarter turn, so now you're like in a chokehold, which is fine, but as long as you're going through the ball with with, without a chicken elbow. You know, your elbow stays close to your body. That's how you receive everything into a cone when you're receiving it into your body. So I have no problem if a guy's if a guy's athletic enough and he's got good hands, working ground up is is fine by me because a lot of, you know, we we see more foreseeing fastballs in today's game although i'm hearing two seams are coming back somewhat the two seamer is obviously the tougher pitch to stay underneath and catching the high pitch the same way is is also where guys are trying to potentially uh, you know uh, show the pitch at the higher highest part of the box because of the uh, high spin rate so uh, again it's all it's it's personal uh, taste uh, it's whatever you're capable of doing if a guy can work underneath the ball so be it
2: now, these are you talking about professional catchers? I know we talked the one knee. What about these young kids that are just starting out? Should they be doing that? Or are they one knee I, up working up?
0: For me, David, I would I, I would watch a young guy, whether it's you know in amateur baseball if he's twelve to fifteen or in high school. I want him to, to receive the ball. I'm I I I would be less uh, I would be less um, about how to position your hand, but more about catching the ball cleanly. That, to me, promotes good hands. I could see a guy with good hands doing that. Somebody who tries to, you know, always, uh, I hate the word steal because that, to me, is it's a bad phrase for what you're doing. But if a guy's got too much movement, he's not going to receive the ball cleanly. And I want it the younger age because their hands and their arms are not as strong as when they get a little bit older. So it's tougher for them to try to frame a pitch or receive a pitch. I would prefer them just catch the ball. Yeah. Catch the ball where it's thrown, and you'll he'll develop his own style as he goes. Uh, you know, as he gets stronger physically in his his forearm and his hands and his wrist, as he develops that, so be so will his receiving.
2: Yeah, I, I think I see a lot. We have a tournament this weekend. My son, my sons are playing in, and I can rotate my head around the field and I'll see eight year olds to fourteen year olds who aren't ready to receive. There are they're still turning strikes into balls instead of keeping strike strikes all using that cookie cutter approach. And I just kind of put my hands in my head thinking, well, what do you think as a pitcher? What do you prefer?
1: You know, um, you know, first of all, you know, years ago, umpires did not like when you were trying to steal strikes because they felt as though you were trying to embarrass when you would pull something out of the strike zone and sit there and hold it like it was a strike. And, uh, There was some retribution, I believe. I know when my catchers did that in the past when I was pitching and umpires didn't like it. Now I see it happen every night, and I don't know if the umpires ever say a word. But, you know, to me, this stealing strikes and framing, um, if my pitchers and I'm doing a good job and I throw strikes, you don't have to steal strikes. Uh, You know, if our pitchers have – good control and command, what do you have to steal? And then they're, they're executing and making pitches. And as Sal said, and now you go back to the basics of just receiving a quality pitch, it looks good to the umpire. And when you're hitting the glove in a certain area, it becomes a quality pitch and a strike. So I just think, um, and, 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 and we're, we've, spent what the last five years on that sale and probably within the next year or two we're gonna to go to an automated strike zone so you're not going to be able to steal anything
0: yeah that's that's true and I think you know to, to answer your question Dave too is is, is the young the young people and say like your sons and so forth you know that are say 12 to 16 and they're not physically strong enough it's hard for them to hold a target for a, for a, a length of time if they set their hands early, and the pitcher holds the ball, eventually they're going to get a little tired in <laughs> there. And that hand's going to drop somewhat. So I used to always tell a a, a, a young catcher when he starts out, rest his, his left, if he's if obviously he's right-handed, uh, rest his left elbow on his leg in a position. If you're in a squat position now, if you're not, if you're in a, on a one knee, it's a little bit tougher. But in a squat position, rest your leg until the pitcher comes set or in his delivery, when he's getting ready to release and when he picks you up, that's when you give your target, yeah, and, and, and try to keep nice. it keep your elbow bent so it's flexible and it's able to move to where the pitch is.
2: Yeah, and I, I marvel at the, the the lack of blocking too. That's one of the badges of courage that will we talk about in Major League Baseball. We see too many pass balls nowadays, and and almost like strikeouts with hitters. That's a badge of courage for a catcher. I, I, I joked with my son Tanner the other day. I looked in his bat bag and he had about twenty baseballs in there. Nice baseballs. And I thought he was taking them from our BP bucket. I said, are you taking baseballs from? And he said, no, these are from the umpires after games. And I said, what are they giving them to you for? He goes, for not getting hit. Um, <laughs> yeah. Balls in front of them." Because, you know, that, at that age, these kids are bouncing curveballs and fastballs all over. The command is all over the place. So he's, uh, he's taking pride in that. So we've kept John for almost an hour, Sal. Well, what, what last questions would you have for Sal? Uh,
1: I, you know, I, I, I think we've covered a lot and, uh, I know Sal's got to run. He's got a day game and, um, unless he wants to add anything, I think, uh, as you always say, I think we, we gave some nice information for some coaches and kids out there and, uh, you know, anything else, Sal?
0: Yeah. I'd like to finish with one thing. The one thing I instilled in my son and I watched him, you know, I, I, I had the, the fortune, I was fortunate enough to coach him uh, periodically throughout his uh, adolescent career. And the one thing I always stressed was have fun. I think too many times in in this day and age where everything is so scripted, you know, everything is, is, you know, I don't want to use the word analytics, but there's so much information. Uh, Too many guys are playing a sport or baseball 12 months a year. I, I see... Uh, I, I see the fun aspect or the enjoyment aspect being taken away somewhat. And I think if you have fun, you tend to, at least I believe, you tend to be more successful, you encourage more, you, you tend to uh, be able to uh, deal with failure better. Because, you're, you know, you enjoy the good things that you do. And then, of course, when there are some bad things, you I think you adjust a little bit. If you put so much into it, you can get burnt out real easy in anything you do. So the one thing I would tell parents out there is, and I stress them, is make sure, have fun first. Because then work becomes that much easier when you want to do stuff with them, regardless of what it might be. And I think they'll get a lot more out of the game. And I think I think as a parent or or a coach, you'll get more satisfaction out of it as well.
2: I love that advice. I, I think uh, I actually wrote about that on a post today on Facebook, how they were hitting that recruiting time for both sports and all these parents, the tens of thousands of dollars, they invested in these travel programs the collect and neglect. I call it mentality, every pitch, every shot, whatever sport they're in, their, their whole worth is hanging on that. And it's, it's, I don't want to say it's comical, but if these kids just go out there with the intent, like you said, to play and to get better instead of being, you know, I guess, evaluated or recruited or signed or whatever they, you know, or posted on social media, they'll, they'll be much more productive and they'll, they'll play longer, I think, too. So I agree with that. I think that's great advice to end on. Will, what about you? You got a parting shot?
1: No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I think Sal and I and you, Dave, we grew up loving playing and we enjoyed ourselves and we had fun. And that's why we carry the same passion as we still carry for this game, because it is such a rewarding game. Um, you know, enjoy your time with your teammates, build, build your relationships as we have all built as uh, adults and the front lifelong friends and enjoy each day that you're, that you're involved in this great game.
2: No, and I think we hit on that on, on this show all the time. There the relationships that both you and Mark have built over your time in baseball are pure and, and true. And our audience, I think, and I hope they get that every time that the people we have on, these are people of the same mindset as Mark and Will. And, and I'm, I appreciate you including me in that, that group, but just true friendships, true relationships. And it was all built through a, through a game and uh, yeah. your dedication to it. So we appreciate what you guys bring to the table. Great messages. Are you, if our young can listen to this and they can follow suit with you guys on how you built yourselves, we'll be in good shape for the next next line of future. But we got to keep banging away on this podcast to get the word out there. And um, I think we built a better baseball IQ, today, no doubt in my mind. I know I got smarter today. I was taking notes the whole time like I always do. And uh, 72 countries out there are all benefiting from what we're passing on, grassroots to major league front offices. 16,000 subscribers, please help us. Continue to battle the analytics of podcasting. Download, listen, like, subscribe. That's fantastic. But you got to rate and review us. That'll help us continue to provide great content like we did today with Sal and Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Give me another streaming device. If you got one, I'll sign up for it. And make sure you engage us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I will get back to everybody. I'll get one online every day. And we appreciate this. This is a day at the yard, common sense pitching with Wiley and Will. Sal Butera was our guest today. Sal, great job, and thank you. And, Will, thanks for what you do for the network.
1: Yeah, thank you, Sal. Thanks, Dave. And uh thinking to Mark. And, uh, Sal, stay on for a little bit after
0: Dave signs no, off. No problem. David, I had, I had a blast. I really enjoyed it. Will, as always, you know that. Yeah. Oh, God you. have been God here all day, you day if you
2: guys didn't have a game.
0: Love you
1: guys.
2: All right. Have a episode 164 in the books.